We're settled in, Paul. We're ready. <laughs> well, this is my first time. Yeah. It, but it, I think, Just really. Just ignore all of these. <laughs> all of these pieces of technology. And, yeah. <laughs> Pretend they don't That microphone exist. in your face is just not there. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Experts in Polo Shirts. Today we're joined by Paul Beaumont, who's a non-exec that I've worked with before. I thought it'd be interesting to get into his experience, what he's done, types of companies he's worked with, and how a non-exec can help improve your business and get you back on the right track. Also joining me today is Stevie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Are you excited? I am, very. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it'd be good to have a little bit about you and how you've started. And Well, that's a long story. Um, We're settled in, Paul. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. I started off in technology pretty well at the start of, of the revolution. Uh, in technology, um, from we're we're now talking forty five years ago. <laughs> um, You've seen everything. Did it start with typewriters, by any chance? Yeah, I remember typewriters. <laughs> I remember fax machines. Fax machines. Do you I remember, remember fax before fax machines. I do remember machines. fax machines. Um, but no, I uh, I started off in computer operations when computers were as big as houses, yeah? <laughs> and um, I worked my way up for uh, a couple of different organizations running computer departments, and I ended up running three computer centers for Unilever, um, for part of Unilever, um, uh, which was a fortunate and lucky break, basically. Um, because in the early days of communications, um, I bought a communications network off a company called Case Communications, right. which was one of the first, um, I guess, technology startups in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and cut a long story short, I ended up working for them. Wow. And I went into sales. Um, so I left a, a reasonably middle management job in Unilever um, in my kind of mid to late 20s um, to go be a rookie salesperson in a startup technology company um, or as my mother called it, um, a jumped up technology company. <laughs> she wasn't that pleased. Um, but things went well. Um, they were the days when um, anything to do with computer communications was a black art. Yep. And people came to you and said, you know, I, this is the business problem I've got. What do I need to do? How do I achieve it? A little bit like today. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. But a bit more blatant. Um, and I found that my knowledge that I'd acquired running computer centers allowed me to talk on the right level and, and advise people. And, and I did well within Case. Case was an interesting business, very aggressive, um, very sales focused. I, and I think I learned a lot about sales. Yep. Uh, from Case Communications, I ended up going to a Canadian company early, uh, uh, early days for me, but I went to a, 
uh, a company called Gandalf Technologies, which was Great a Canadian name. company. Fantastic. Great name. And that's where it came from. <laughs> the guy that started the business was a, um, a talking freak and British guy. Um, couldn't fund his business uh, in the UK, went to Canada, um, and they basically said, where do you want us to build your factory? Right. Wow. So it became a Canadian company, but the largest market they had was Europe. The largest market in Europe was the UK, um, and the UK was in trouble. Um, from a sales point of view, they were trying to move from an indirect model to a direct model and had made a mess of it. You know what it's like when you're trying to do something like that. Um, the uh, direct and indirect people are fighting in the marketplace. Um, typically, the direct guy wins it because it gives more discount. Yeah. And then the channel says, you know, if you don't compensate me for the money I would have made on that, then we're going to use somebody else. Yeah, and every, everything's up a mess and everyone's upset about it. It is. And at the end of the day, the uh, company that's supplying, in this case Gandalf, um, didn't make any profit on it because yeah. they were paying commissions and commissions and, you know, left, right and centre. Um, so, cut long story short, they had a problem. I went as sales director, sorted out their problems. And, and that really um, established me as someone that could deal with, you know, the sales issues anyway. Uh, my successor at Gandalf uh, back in 1990, I ended up as MD of the company. So one day I was a, a sales director running, you know, a sales team of probably a dozen people. Uh, I went to work the next day and I had R&D working for me, manufacturing and, <laughs> you know, scary. A lot, a lot to learn overnight. Then. But that went well. Um uh, shortly after that, I ended up as a European MD. Shortly after that, I moved to Canada for two and a half years and uh, basically ran um, sales, marketing and service globally. Did you enjoy living in Canada? Canada was great, apart from the weather. <laughs> well, because it's freezing. Is it freezing all the time? It's, it's not. I, I lived in Ottawa. The business was based uh, in Nepean. Um, so I lived in Ottawa, and in the summer, it's great. I mean, it's 30, 35, 40 sometimes. Um, but in the winter, it's minus 20, wow. minus 25 sometimes. Yeah. And it's a whole we're, different we're way of life. We're upset that it's minus three. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole different way of life. Yeah. Um, but Gandalf was great for me because it established me, you know, as... as someone that could make a difference. Yeah. And I came back from there and I became managing director of Motorola's uh, computer communications business. Uh, I launched their um, cable telephony business um, and, and I basically ran a big business across Europe, Middle East and Africa. Wow. But I also um, joined the European board of uh, Motorola. Um, so... From there, I left to do something completely different, and I took a software business that was uh, in really uh, dire straits, uh, turning over 35 million a year and burning 25 million. 
Wow. And I took that business uh, to break even. Then I bought the business off the VC owner. And I ran it for another couple of years before an American company made me a very interesting offer for it, shall we say, <laughs> which is typical.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typical.com. So the, the Motorola stuff, was that back when mobile was sort of beginning to peak? It was really interesting because, now it was actually probably a little bit before that. You know, I remember being in on, because I was on the board, and I, I got involved in the cellular side. And, uh, you know, for example, I remember when um, we first talked about putting uh, text messaging on phones. Wow. And I, I remember a conversation in Boston, I think it was, you know, a number of, of senior people in the business, you know, all sat on the floor and talking about uh, what was going to happen in cellular. And one of the questions was, you know, we could put this text thing on phones. No, people use phones for talking on. <laughs> that will never work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Round wheels, they'll never work. <laughs> yep. And um, six months later, there was more traffic on text message than, than there ever was on voice. I also remember being in a similar conversation in the same office in Boston, which was, um, you remember Palm Pilots? I do, yeah. yeah Digital yeah. Assistant. I've, I've probably still got one somewhere. Yeah. Well, um, the conversation was, will the PDA take over from the mobile phone or will the mobile phone take over from the PDA? And... To this day, I'm not sure what really happened. I think we got something new called a yeah. smartphone, yeah, which of... was probably nearer to the phone taking over the PDA. Do you remember the um, Nokia one that like opened? So it had a screen on yeah, it on one yeah. side and a keyboard at the bottom. Yeah, I think they were like they were like the, the ultimate like PDA Palm Pilot hybrid. Yeah, but they it was very very re relied upon having a PC really to do most of the functions. Like when you you wrote stuff on it, you couldn't really it had email, but it was a bit clunky, and the keyboard was far too small to yeah, use. Yeah, the buttons are so <laughs> tiny. But it was cool technology, yeah, wasn't it? Was, it? And, it was. and everybody in the tech industry wanted one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's pretty well what happened to me. And then after I'd done the deal with the software company, um, that I turned around, it gave me the opportunity, to be honest, to do what the hell I wanted. Yeah. So um. Since then, I've done four startups um, and I've done eight turnarounds, seven, because I, I count that business as my first. Right. Um, and what I do now, bearing in mind that uh, I'm semi-retired, uh, what I do now is I sit on uh, a couple of boards as non-exec yep. um, uh, technology businesses. Um, and I also work with startups at the moment. I'm working with three from an advisory point of view. And I also do uh, work with uh, typically startups and, and small SMEs on behalf of uh, Leeds Lep, Sheffield Lep, uh, et cetera, part of the Northern Powerhouse. Yep. It's cool. <clears throat> um, and at the age that I am, um, it, it gives me the opportunity to do what I want, yeah. really, which is great. And, you know, with all the experience that I've got, 
and I have got a lot of experience, not only in starting and running businesses and turning them around, but from an international point of view, I've worked in just about every uh, corner of the globe. Yep. You know, when, when I had my own business, the business that I bought off the VC, you know, my business was uh, based down south in Maidenhead. Um, but I had 300 and odd people based in Moscow. Um, I had a considerable organization in Africa, uh, another one in uh, Norway, uh, serving that region. And I did a startup uh, for the business in the Middle East. So it's cool. I, I've got a lot of experience. And what I really enjoy is helping particularly startups um, by just using the experience that I've got. What I say to people is, you know, whatever problems uh, an MD's got um, of a startup, I've probably had to deal with that before. Yeah. Most of the time, I made the right decisions. But the times when I didn't make the right decision, at least I know what we shouldn't be doing. Yeah, no, that's really true. I mean, we've we've probably known each other for probably about four years now. Mm. And we actually, we were introduced, I can't remember the chap's surname, Tim. He runs a executive recruitment business head oh yeah yeah tim tim can't remember his this is bad isn't it i it can't is remember his name <laughs> either. A, i need to give him a plug now because yeah i i spoke to him because we were talking i think i actually asked him do you recruit non-execs or you know and he's, he was like well no i, I don't I, I recruit at this sort of band of salary that's how we got yeah yeah we, got we did to know each other. and he, he rang me out of the blue one day and said oh i think i've got someone that you might be interested in talking to and he's like there's no there's no fee for it um, I'm going to have to find his name now because it's going to bug me if I don't. <laughs> well, it's bugging me as well now. Yeah, I'm going to have to go on LinkedIn and find it. There we go. Tim Hastings. Tim <laughs> Hastings. Were, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Tim Hastings. Yeah. And I've spoken to him since then, actually, because when we were looking at recruiting someone senior in sales, I, I reached out to him. But yeah, shout out, Tim Hastings. If you're looking for executive recruitment, he's the man to go to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it, that's how we, we met. And I think when we right. first started working together... I mean, we were, things were a bit of a mess. I think it's fair to say. Like there's a lot of, because like you said, when you go in a startup business, you don't know what you're doing because that's the nature of starting your first business. It, you learn as you go. To be honest, in my experience, people that do startups generally, not always, but generally, come to it from a product point of view or a service point of view. Yeah. Um, and it's quite interesting, particularly if if it's techies or, or engineers. They come at it with an idea for a product or a service. Um, and they're great at it, absolutely. But they don't know anything about running a business. And, and one of the big issues that I find, particularly engineers think that people are going to come flocking and asking to buy the product. Yeah. And, you know, they start the business, they develop the product, and then they're surprised when people don't come and knock on the door and ask if they can buy it. Yeah. Where's the fanfare? <laughs> Where's the truck? The absolute, the massive line of people out of the door to buy my stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you think exactly. it's quite hard to get that into their mind? It is because they are... They've got this idea that the product that they've got is amazing and everybody wants it. 
which could well be the situation. But it is useful if you tell people about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. it, you know, go back to the to the basics of selling. It's It's useful if you tell people what the benefits of your product are and to be honest, why it's better than everybody else's. Yeah. You know, I often say to people, you know, why should somebody buy your product? Why buy your product rather than the one down the road? Yeah. You know, because in we're in a crowded marketplace in just about every sector. So why are you better than other people? Why is your product better? Why is your service better? Yeah. You know, and, and saying something like, our service is great, you know, we're nice to people, um, my product's better quality than anybody else's, doesn't wash. Yeah. People don't believe you for a start. But, you know, you've got to give cast iron reasons why people should come to you. And if you do it right, people come to you. And and in these days, then, you know, people all, it, it goes viral as to how good you are at your product and um, or your service and why other people should deal with you and the benefits and everything else start rolling. And and it's great, but you've got to get it moving. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a snowball. You've got to build a snowball and you shove it down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger. I can I can totally relate to the techie piece because this is something that like I, jo- I was joking about only yesterday. Yeah. So to the techies, they just say, well, it's, you know, just just get more customers and sell them this thing and that, and you know, and do this and do that, and I'm like, it's not that easy, <laughs> like because I I come from that slightly naive place of being in a business that was established and you've got customers and things are easier there because you've got a captive audience, but when you start a new business, no one knows about what you do, and if you you got to get yourself out there and in front of people because best product doesn't necessarily win. If you find that a lot, like it's just the best known product that tends to win. The big things that I get involved in is raising money with startups. And that's a, a crucial thing, you know. Even to this day, the way that you, you raise money for a startup is to have a pitch deck that tells your story, you know, and, and you go and you pitch it. Yep. Um, you don't, as one of my recent clients uh, came up with, you don't, record a voiceover on a on a presentation and send it to them (laughs) which was what he wanted to do you know what you do is you go you stand in front of them you pitch you go through your your pitch deck and basically your enthusiasm uh, etc comes out and that's how you how you raise money but you know a pitch deck for an investment is the biggest sale anybody's ever going to do in their life. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've got to sell themselves. You've, you've got to sell your product. And the most important thing is product or service. Why your product or service is better and why people will come and buy from you. Yeah. And once you've been through that process of, of writing a pitch deck, to be honest, you know, the, the information that you're going to use for, for selling further down the line kind of comes out of that as well. Yeah. I think my experience of raising money is that it can be one of the most time consuming and like just wholeheartedly consuming things that you can do because you have to give it your everything until you get that right offer. And sometimes even when you get an offer, you just can't make it work for the business. 
and you have to you, you're back out on the road trying to raise money that again. must be hard to put loads of effort in and then it gets to the point where you're like that's not going to work and then you have to start again yeah pitching again for more money it, it is but the the worst thing one of the worst things that you can do is to be pitching for for investment and go for the first um opportunity to take investment in you you know it's like anything in business you know it's a bit like playing snooker or whatever you know you're not interested in well you are interested in potting this ball but the next thing is where does the ball end up you know to line up the next shot and and that's what business is all about and you know we're not a one-trick pony we're not going for one order we're we're going for relationships with customers we're going for building brands and we've got to look at the longer term and think back three or four years that's exactly what we do yeah you know yeah. looking at the business where you want to take the business in the future and you know again there's too many people that are interested in that big order you know or raising that piece of cash but not interested in what happens next yeah you know it's Building a business is a bit like building a house. If you don't get your foundations right on your house, you've got a major problem. If you don't get your foundations right on your business, by God, you've got a hell of a problem. Yeah. I think that as well, one thing that I find is that with the younger generation now, there's this obsession like with the overnight success, is that I can just have it and have it now. What they don't realize is that a lot of what you see, it was many, many years in the making. It was 10, 15 years in the making to get to where that person suddenly had a little bit of success and it snowballed. Um, and I, I find that with, well, with some of my younger friends, actually they, well, you know, I we start this business, it's going to be great. And it's going to be, you know, three years from now, I'll be looking back, it'll be brilliant. There are successes like that, yeah. but they're few and far between, yeah. is my experience. Interestingly enough, this week, I was looking at how many businesses I'd worked with. Um, and... I've I've probably been doing the type of work that I'm doing now for about seven years, but concentrating in the last probably four years on it. Um, and I've worked with 83 different companies in four years. Um, the interesting thing is when I have a first introductory call or meeting with a company, um, I always ask the same question, you know, where where's the business going? Where do you want to go personally? And 50% of the people answer, I want to build a business for three years and sell it in five. And that's not what it's all about. It's long term. Um, And the longer you build a business, the better you build a business, the more it's worth. You know, and people that think building businesses is all about, you know, the next three years and then they're going to sell the business. Again, lots of people are going to come running, asking if they can buy the business, you know, and they're, they're never going to have to work again in their life. And it's like you said, most of these people are 24 or 25. You know, from a personal point of view, I always say to them, what are you going to do then? Yeah. You know, there's only so many times you can, you know, play golf or wash the car or, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think, like, I think it, you know, in, in the future, if something did happen like that, I don't think I could stop working. I, just, I think I'd, I'd always have to be doing something, whether it's, you know, working with other companies, investments, or go and do something different. I don't, I don't know. I don't think I could just be at home. I, I think I'd, I'd find time to relax, 
but I, I don't know. Well, I might. <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, Chris, tell me about it. I'm 65 now. Um, <laughs> And I've retired four times. Four times. When was yeah. the first retirement? Um, 46. 46. And you still, you decided to Not 1946. <laughs> 46 yeah. years old. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's because you, you do enjoy doing those turnarounds and working with startups? That's why you haven't stopped. Yeah, I think I think it is. I, I mean, I've said to Chris before, I, I do what I want and what I enjoy. Yeah. And I am getting to the stage now where I get approached by companies and if I don't like the market that they're in and, dare I say, if I don't feel comfortable with the senior people in the business, I say no. Well, you can be picky, can't you? You're in that position. It's a good position to be in that. Yeah, very picky, yeah. It's an interesting position. But I think it's the... I guess that if you if you someone that's going to be difficult to work with, you're not going to be able to offer that much value because you might not have that relationship with them. Or get the best out of them. It it's like, you know, certainly running a business. If you've got a team of senior people, then they've got to get on well together. Yeah. And um, to be honest, you've got to have the right sort of people in your business as well. You know, because I I don't care who it is in the business. If they don't believe in the culture and don't fit in the culture of the business, then it's not going to work that well. No, and my experience is that those individuals tend to bring other people down. They, they can impact all the others as well. So and you tend to find that if you've got someone like that and then they're no longer with you, that actually you get a marked improvement in culture and performance. Yeah, I think when you're recruiting people, Obviously, if you're recruiting someone to do a certain job, you need to make sure that they're qualified for it, they've got a track record, and and they can do the job. But then I think there's a big piece, which is, you know, do they fit in the business? Is this a good cultural fit? Yeah. And again, it's very difficult to turn somebody down who's a great software engineer or, or whatever because you don't think they'll fit in. But... The truth of the matter is that if you make the wrong hire because it's a bad cultural fit, you'll upset the, the other people that work for you or certainly work directly with the individual. And they're not going to be comfortable and they're going to go. Yeah, and I've got experience of that. So I can I can totally relate. And yeah, I completely agree. I think we we all have. You know, I've got lots of experience <laughs> of it. You learn by almost your mistakes. Yeah, you know, but the one thing that I say is the one thing you can't teach people is experience. Yeah, it's, it's really true. I actually, I said exactly the same thing yesterday when we were talking about recruitment here. Someone asked me, "Well, should we hire in tech?" And I said, "Well, I don't think we're ready for a graduate yet because you, that experience you can't teach it." And um, yeah, that's you need you need that balance of people that can support those more junior roles if you are going to hire juniors. Yeah, I I think hiring apprentices, you know, young people is fabulous. I am a massive believer in hiring young talent, training people, giving kids a chance. And as you develop them, I think you get great employees and great senior people in the business further downstream. But it is a big investment from both sides. Yeah. You know, I'm 
I'm a massive believer in promoting from within a business. Yep. I think it's better for everybody. Um, you know, I've I've got friends that run businesses, some of them quite big businesses, and they believe in recruiting from the outside when they're bringing senior people in. But what does that look like to the people in the business? Yeah. You know, um, and those people in the business might have 10 years, 12 years invested in the business, you know, and they've got experience, 10 or 12 years experience, often from the bottom up on customers, marketplace, products, um, and they're just comfortable with it all. Why throw that away and bring somebody in who has, you know, a different culture, uh, knows different products, different customers, etc. It, it's it's an interesting one. I I also think that you need to bring new blood in every so often, but you know I I'm a big believer in promoting from within and and also nurturing yeah. uh, staff. In terms of the businesses that you've worked with, is there ever like a a common sort of inflection point where something happens? And you see that businesses transform as a result of that change. Is there, is there one to three things that you could identify that have a significant impact in business performance? One of the key things in businesses is, you know, when a business is a startup, you'll recognize this. You know, the, uh, the people that start a business do everything. Yeah. And you are the business. You know, you make the tea, um, but you visit the customers, you implement the systems, you, you project manage it, you do everything, um, which is all about being a startup. Um, people find it difficult to get out of, of the startup, company startup mode. Um, and uh, I don't want to talk about any companies in particular that I've worked with. But um, I've been to companies, um, you know, £8 million turnover manufacturing company, manufacturing uh, 50p products, products they sell for 50p that sell for a quid um, in the shops. Um, and uh, £8 million business with sort of sub-20 employees, good business. Um and they all reported to the founder of the business. Wow. Um, and that is not uncommon. And to sit and talk and say, we're not going to be able to scale this business unless you let go of part of it. And the interesting thing is, if you can get people to agree and understand that, you bring people in or you promote from within um, to run different areas of the business. You know, the founder soon realizes that, for example, you bring in a professional production manager and funnily enough, they can run production <laughs> better than you can, <laughs> you know, yep. I, and, and that's a, a key area. Yep. Um, the other thing is the value of marketing. Marketing is a huge part of uh, the sales and marketing process, lead generation process nowadays, the branding of a business, particularly with social media, etc. But the number of people that don't believe in marketing is frightening. 
Um, and um, once the belief in marketing clicks in, then that's a game changer for people. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. the other thing is that um, I don't want to talk about sales or marketing too much, but, you know, salespeople, oh, yeah, they're those jack the lads that, you know, come into a business for 18 months, then they're off somewhere else, you know, and they can talk the talk and, and, and that's it. That's not true. It used to be true at, at one stage, but, you know, you need to invest in salespeople. They need to be here for the long term. And, and, and nowadays you sell differently, don't you? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the other thing. The old joke about salespeople. Um, you know, if a salesman can talk the hind leg off a donkey, he's a great salesman. But as we all know, it's all about listening, finding out what the customer wants uh, and meeting that requirement. Yeah. And that, I think as, like, in technical businesses, you tend to find that the technical founders, there's that sort of like us and them relationship with sales. And I think it's, I explained to people, like, it's the oxygen, like in that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sales is your oxygen without it you're not going to have a business in 12, 18, 24 months, whatever it might be. Everybody in a business has got a part to play in it. If you look back 20, 30 years in a business, you know, you, you used to walk into a business and there was reception with, you know, typically a, a lady on reception. Um, and at that stage, she's the most important person in the business. Because if she deals with your new prospect that's coming in for a meeting, if she deals with him the right way, friendly, etc., then surprisingly, it's a great business. The prospect thinks, what a lovely business. You know, I can do business with them. If she's cold, unhelpful, you know, then all of a sudden, I want to do business with these people. And I've not met the senior people in the business. I don't know that much about the product, but I just know I don't want to deal with them. And, and you know, that that's a straightforward example from 25 years ago or whatever, but it's true today. You know, how do you talk to people on the, uh, on the phone? How does your website come over? Because websites can come over as friendly, professional business, or it can come over as being cold, you know, and that's your lady on reception almost. Yeah, and that's, I guess that's how things change. And that first impression now is not the person that you meet in that traditional event where you walk through the door, it's your website and actually communicating that. I think that's a good, that's definitely, I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time, Steve will tell you, we, we've had some, we've had some absolute stinking days yeah. talking about messaging for the website. And going round and round in our co corporate sort of company story. But like and you say, it's so important, isn't it? It is, yeah. We get it right. And social media is important because, you know, for me, people look at social media, they see the product or service they want, but they understand the culture of the business as well from social media. And then the next thing they do is look at your website. The way that you talk on social media um, and um, not push people, but invite people to go to the website and then what they see on the website, you know, and then the important thing is, have we done enough that they want to talk to us? 
and they want to fill the contact form in or dare I even say pick up the phone and talk to us. Um, and the number of businesses, particularly young businesses, that don't understand that and the rubbish that they put on social media, they don't realise how much damage they're doing to the yeah. business by putting stupid things on social media. Yeah, yeah, the fluffy posts. Yeah. Stevie's big on this. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to tell us yeah, about? Yeah, I uh, just, I'm all about like brand image and everything. It's got to go in line with your website. It's got to portray like a really positive image of the the business and the brand. Not a fan of fluffy posts. Yeah. Um. So I'm so glad you've said that. Um. <laughs> I just. I just think there's so much, especially now, like post-COVID, there's so much on social media that's, like if you go on LinkedIn, most of it I, I don't want to see because it's not why I go on LinkedIn. I go on to network, see what other businesses are doing. And there's too much fluff on there and it's, it's too much noise. Yep, I totally agree with you. And dare I say with LinkedIn... LinkedIn gets more like Facebook every day. Yeah, it frustrates me. The noise is just insane. Like the amount, because I think other platforms have stopped performing for organisations. Yeah. Everyone's flocked to LinkedIn. That's decreased the organic reach of any posts that you make. And now all I keep seeing is polls all the time. My feed is polls about home. something. Work from home. Yeah, yeah, here I am. Work from home. We know. Yeah, we've seen you set up <laughs> lots of times. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, we all do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we all work from home. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to tell us what it's like. We've been like. doing it for a while now. Yeah. I'll have to start muting people soon. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I I think business has changed, but the the basics of business are still the same. Yeah, you know, you you need a great product, a great service, or whatever, and you need to be a good company to to do business with, friendly, professional, and um. Somewhere down there, price is, is involved, you know. You, you talk to people and they'll say price is not important. It is, yeah. you know. Um, uh, but lots of other things are, are almost more important than price. You know, someone will pay a, will pay a, a, a higher price to deal with a more professional company that's easier to deal with um, and to buy a better product um it, it's just a natural thing that you will do otherwise you know we'd we'd all be driving the cheapest cars that you could think of do you think price is like more significant depending which business you've worked with like the manufacturing where they sell things 50p a pound like price i guess is quite important to the retailers that they're supplying but with technology when it's service and like data and things that are really important do you think people will pay a higher price yeah people will pay a higher price and quite often the benefits that they get from your product or service at the end of the day are worth money to them yeah it it, it may help them to sell their product or service for a higher price or it you know it, it might just be a more reliable product which they're they're willing to pay for yeah um but it's up to us as the business that are selling the products to explain to people why our products or services are better, why the return on their investment's better. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, somebody running a business or 
a, a finance officer, chief finance officer in a big business should be looking for return on investment. Yeah. And generally, they should be making a decision to go with the product or service, buy the product or service that gives them the better return on investment. Yeah. Um, and it's not their job to find out how they get the best return on investment. Yeah. It's our job to tell them how our product or service can give them the best return on investment. Yeah. There's a fine line, particularly in technology, where you know we we need to be explaining to to customers. I, if if you look at new products and the way that technology changes, there's a certain amount of the customer telling us what they want and they need. But when technology is changing so quickly, there's you know, a school of thought that says the customer doesn't necessarily know what they want because they don't know what's available. So it's up to us to say this new piece of technology that does things differently ultimately gives you a better return on investment yeah. because, and, and we need to explain things, don't we, in their language that they understand, not super techie language that, Half the time, even we, you know, people that are in technology don't understand. That's that's another thing that really, really annoys me in the technology world. It seems to be who can talk the most geeky language, <laughs> you know, which which is fine when techies are talking to each other, but when you're talking to somebody that owns a McDonald's or whatever because you're putting a new computer system in for them. You can't expect somebody who owns a, a McDonald's or a transport company or, or an airline or whatever to understand the latest geeky language. Yeah. So it's all about understanding your customer. Yeah. And Agreed. I mean, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> Talking to your customer in a language that, they're comfortable with and they understand. Yeah. I think we've we've got quite a ours is quite technical. Not not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. I remember our first website, it was one hundred percent technical and it was atrocious. I think Whereas, that's having a copyright that's not technical. Like I couldn't write full nerd because I could I couldn't do it. <laughs> full I nerd. I wouldn't be able to write full nerd because it would make no sense and I don't understand it myself. I have to digest the information yeah. and then put it out so naturally it works a little bit better. Chris might nerd it up a little bit more. but Not too much. Though. Not too much, <laughs> no. But. Yeah. You, you talk in the language that your customer wants to hear, don't you? If, if it's a techie business selling to a techie business, yeah. then they'll expect some of that and be comfortable with it. But as we say, if it's someone who's completely non-tech then they're, they're not going to want it. But the other thing is, if if you're selling to someone that owns a bunch of McDonald's, yeah, which is a great business, yeah, <laughs> then um, it's useful if the salesperson um, understands a bit about McDonald's. You know, and I, I'm not suggesting that we run around recruiting salespeople that have worked in McDonald's. Um but this is not paid sponsorship for McDonald's, <laughs> just to point that out. <laughs> yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that as professional salespeople, 
um, you know, people should be looking at uh, the appointments that they've got next week yeah. and then spending a couple of hours uh, every week researching the markets and, and those businesses so they can go and talk to the prospect and talk about the business and the market that yeah. the prospect's in. And, and immediately the prospect will start to feel comfortable. Um, but if you get a salesperson who, who goes to see a prospect, doesn't know the first thing about the business or the market and talks the geeky language that the customer doesn't understand, I, I would guess they're not going to do very well in Do you think that. that's a, a problem for startups that they they don't? Because I had a call the other day, a sales call, and she made reference to something we'd done on social media. And I was like, oh, it was it. And it's made me remember her now because normally it's just like, do you want this? Do you want this? And yeah. to have a bit of like personal element to it, I, I think it makes yeah, a difference. Yeah, that, that's exactly... You want to build a rapport as soon as possible with yeah. your prospect, don't you? Yeah. So if, if you can talk the language that your prospect understands and works with every day, if you can talk about the market that they're in, the products that they've got, yeah. then suddenly the prospect feels more comfortable. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, if the prospect's smart, which most of them are, they're going to say, well, this person's invested a bit of time before this meeting, so it's worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. So we're in a much more sophisticated marketplace than we ever were. Yeah. And, and I guess in 10 years' time, it'll be even more sophisticated. Yeah. Is there anything we want to cover? What is a non-exec is a good place to start, I think. Being a non-exec or looking for a non-exec is quite interesting. You know, and, and a process that um, people should think about. Yeah. Because a lot of the time people don't. Um, I, like I'm sure lots of other people in my position, regularly get asked if I want to be a non-exec on, on somebody's board. And normally the answer is no. Yeah, simply because for me, it has to be right for the company to be right for me. You know, and just because... Um, I've been around a while, I'm an old guy, um, and I've got a lot of experience, um, doesn't make me a good fit yeah. for a non-exec. So what do you look for in a non-exec? First of all, a non-exec is, is not an, an employee of the company, and they shouldn't be an employee of the company um, because they need to be almost impartial. So the first thing that a non-exec's doing is keeping the um, business legal uh, and, and, and working correctly. But the other thing that they're doing is they need to be impartial. If they see things that are not right in the business, uh, no matter who's responsible for it or whatever, they need to put their hand up and say, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the right thing to do, in my opinion, for the following reasons. Um they need to keep businesses professional um, and they need to keep businesses um, up to date. The, the way that we talked about marketing and everything yeah. else, you you almost give an outside view yeah. um, to, to the senior management, the leadership of, of the business. Um, 
But also as a non-exec, you need to be making sure that the other people around the table, you know, which typically might be um, the CEO, the CFO, and the chief operating officer, um, you need to make sure that they're running the business correctly, that um, they're, particularly if there's multiple shareholders involved, that they're doing the right thing for the business and for the shareholders and the stakeholders. Yeah. You know, they, um, for me, I brand my business. And I think that's what a, a non-exec is there to do. Increase stakeholder value to give um, impartial advice. Um, yes, typically a, a non-exec's uh, got lots of experience, been around for a while, um, so can help, uh, again, on the experience side. But, you know, when they see something going right, they need to support the management team, and that's a big part of a non-exec role. But also when they see something that's not right, they need to put their hand up and, and make sure that it's corrected, be that something legally um, that's not being uh, done correctly, something, um, I mean, you've only got to look at some of the racism uh, yeah. sort of issues now. I've seen those in companies uh, and, you know, they've got to be stopped. Look at some of the uh, repercussions from those. Yeah. So I think a non-exec has, has got an impartial role to play They've got a, a guardian, safeguarding type role to play. And then the other thing that a, a non-exec has, has got to play is um, somebody that's been in the industry for 25, 30, 40 years or whatever has got a lot of experience in the industry. Yeah. So it's an interesting role. You've got to wear lots of different hats. Um, but the other thing I would say from a non-exec um, you know, I've I've run boards and had non-execs on it that have been absolutely great. But I, I've also had non-execs on a board that turn up at the board meeting and they've not read any board papers. Oh. Um, and, and I've also, interestingly, had um, non-execs that have supported the CEO in particular 110%. And particularly when I was CEO. You know, I, I've had non-execs that have supported me, told me wonderful things about what I'm doing, etc. when I now realise I was doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And I want a non-exec that says to me, that's, that's an interesting idea, Paul, but have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? I don't think that'll work. I think you're doing the wrong thing, Guy. Yeah. Yeah, this is what you should be doing. And um, I have had non-execs that I'd come up with sometimes some interesting ideas and they'd support me 110%. And it's not until you're partway through implementing it that you realise yourself, Woof, this is the wrong thing to do. I'm doing this the wrong way. Yeah. Um, at which point, you know, you might talk to your non-exec and, you know, I had one guy that, that would a number of times has, has said to me, yeah, well, I didn't think it was the right thing, but I didn't want to interfere. The job of a non-exec is to not interfere, but 
to point out what, in your view, works and doesn't work. You know, what is the right thing to do? And as, as a experienced business leader moving into non-exec, you know, you would hope that someone's got 25, 30 years experience or whatever. They know what they're doing. So you need to have like, in a, to put it bluntly, a bit about you so that you can say to someone, that's wrong. Or like kind of give advice, but kind of have that bit of oomph behind you. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think you you've got different hats to play, and one is supporting, helping, encouraging, and and face it, telling senior managers, leaders in businesses, directors, "Hey guys, you're doing a great Especially job." Especially if it's their business. That yeah, yeah, you, you're doing a great job, and because we all know that leading businesses is a pretty lonely difficult place to be just about to say just that say, just yeah. about to say that it is a very lonely place when yeah. you're in a business yeah and all ceos in in some people's minds earn millions of pounds a year drive big fancy cars you know go on on lots of holidays or whatever um which is not particularly true um and it, it's quite interesting when things are going well people want to be your friend when things start to get difficult, and businesses always have difficult times, always. It's a cycle that we go through. And when businesses are having a difficult time, then, hey, you're the guy that earns the big bucks. It's your problem, not mine. Yeah. Um, and they're the times where non-execs need to get their arms around people and help them and encourage them. I've seen non-execs that have done exactly the opposite. Yeah. You know, I don't want to talk detail, but I, I've had non-execs on my boards where when things are wrong, I, are going wrong, they turn around and say, well, I, I, I knew that was going to happen because you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And, and, you know, my answer to that is, well, six months ago, why didn't you tell me I should be doing this and I should be doing this and I should be doing this? Because... That's what I pay you for. Exactly. Don't need a hindsight. Exactly. Yeah. That's the yeah. that's the the experience that you're bringing to the table to challenge you, where you need that expertise, someone who's been there, done that, and that's the reason for bringing in that non-executive. They're not going to challenge you, then that's probably where the most significant portion of value is in having that role. I ag- I agree with you. It's it's all about encouraging and helping to do the right things. And pointing out when things are going adrift, people are not doing the right things or they could do it better. And and being a non-exec is just like being anything else in a business. You've got to add value. And if you don't add value, you shouldn't be there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's, uh, no, I, I completely agree. Good. Well, <laughs> Did Paul add value? 100%. Yeah, like we, so we worked together um We've worked together for we worked together for a period of time initially. I think it was like a couple of months we worked together, maybe like four, five, six months or something, maybe. Yeah, probably. And no. then um, we did a couple of days a month, which was sort of getting everything kicked off and running. And we, I think, what Paul taught me was the importance of the P and L, like because for previously we'd done that, but we weren't really super on top of it. And actually, once I started to get into the, because I, I quite like numbers and I'm quite like driven by that in that 
I like to have everything quite tidy in terms of knowing what's coming in, what's projected. But I think a lot of that I didn't have before I met Paul. Yeah. And that kind of instilled keeping a strict P&L, running the business and, you know, being able to get to the position where the organization back then started to pay its way. And, you know, we went on to to successfully have two of the fact members of the business exit. And that's, yeah, working with Paul was intrinsic to that success because he had that experience, the voices of expertise to come in and challenge what we were doing yeah. and say, well, actually, and this is a conversation we had is actually what you're doing is, is not going to work because <laughs> your customer, it's a complex sale and you've got more junior people on your sales team. And actually those enterprise accounts need someone who knows enterprise. So what you need to do is, in my opinion, is, as you say, is do these things. So we, you know, we, we thinned the team out. We reduced it down to a very minimal number. We banked an element of capital to allow us to fund finding the right person. And then we brought the right person in. But when you're sort of running a business, it's a bit like you can't see the wood through the trees. Yeah. And actually bringing on an executive is what allows you to do that. So it added tremendous value to our organization. And we've worked together since on you know, reviewing strategy and having conversations. And, and I think that's been really valuable just to have someone that you can rely upon to give you honest feedback and if you if you're doing something right for them to say yep you know what i think you, you go in the right direction this sounds great but did you think about this or actually no i don't think you're going quite down the right path these are the reasons why it's like a trust thing like yeah you obviously have a genuine interest in the business yeah and that's nice to have someone that only has that genuine interest but knows what's talking about <laughs> so they can yeah. actually help you and they're not going to do it for you yeah but, that's, but you don't want that do no, you, you want to no. do it yourself yeah, yeah. But no, it's been it's been awesome. Do you know it's interesting what you say about uh, an eye on the numbers, the number of people, particularly startups, that don't have an eye on the numbers. That period where you're a startup, then suddenly something clicks and you start to do quite well, and that's when people take their eye off the numbers. Yeah, because when you're a startup, you look at your bank balance every day and you're looking at your forecasts and everything else. Yeah. And then the business takes off and, you know, all of a sudden people turn their back on the numbers. And I've talked to more than one business leader and I've said, how's your sales going for the year? And they've said, oh, don't know. And I said, well, don't you do management accounts at the end of each month? Don't you know what you've sold? No, I don't bother looking at it. You know, and say, so, well, if you don't know what your sales are, do you know whether you're making profit every month? No, 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 I don't bother about it. My accountant tells me when he does the accounts at the end of the year. Now, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that's crazy. But I've had it happen more than once. Yeah. And I pointed out to people that, you know, if something's going wrong now and the end of the year is not till 10 months away, won't it be useful to know about it now so you can fix it? Yeah, yeah because it... Is the expression that I like is you could drive it off the cliff and leave no skid marks. Yeah, <laughs> great. great. <laughs> because 10 months later, you might have a serious cash flow problem that you can't turn around. Yeah. yeah. And no one will ever lend you money when you need it. And if they do, it'll be at onerous terms. Exactly. You know, when you need money, it's not available. When you don't need it, everybody wants to lend you. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Good. Cool. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Experts in Polo Shirts. We'll leave Paul's details in the comments box below in case you want to get to touch with him. You can also find him on LinkedIn. If you liked today's episode, please leave a comment, 
rate the podcast. It really helps us. And if you want to look at other episodes, you can find them all on our YouTube channel.